0: A truly legendary earnings report, and a look inside Retail's Rally. Motley Fool Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money, that's why they call it money.
2: The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees.
3: I like From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool
0: Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analysts Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. Guys, great to have you here. Hey, hey Dylan. We've got brick and mortar putting up big results and lessons in leadership from a seasoned executive, but we're starting out today talking tech. We've got earnings from Nvidia, Intuit, and Zoom, and we're kicking off this week talking about tech because the sector is probably the biggest factor, Matt, in how investors are feeling so far this year.
4: That's right, Dylan, and it's it's remarkable the numbers I'm about to go through. Right, so here we are; we're almost to the end of May. The QQQ Nasdaq 100 up almost thirty percent year-to-date. That's a monster year already. The S&P 500, by the way, up 9%, not a slouch there either. But here's where it gets interesting. If you look at the equal-weighted S&P 500, for example, as of Thursday's market close, that's negative. So The average stock in the S&P 500 (laughs) is actually negative for the year. The Dow Jones is also negative. The Russell 2000 small cap's basically flat for the year. Um, If you're a dividend investor like I am, well, you're in trouble because the, for example, the Schwab U.S. dividend ETF, which is one of the more popular dividend ETFs, that's down seven percent. Energy, the sector, is down seven percent. And don't get me started on banks, financials, or real estate. Forget about it. Tough, tough year so far. So I guess the point is, traders would call this breadth or the lack of breadth in the market. And it's not a great, great sign. Um, and I just think, you know, if you weren't in a lot of the big technology companies that we've been talking about, and I know we're going to talk about a huge one in just a minute, um, you're probably not feeling that great this year. and You just have to wonder if leadership is so narrow in the market. Um, Does that mean that certain parts of the market have run too fast, and the other parts that have been left behind, are they looking maybe more compelling and investors need to maybe shift their focus just a little bit.
0: I think a lot of people probably holding mutual funds, very happy that the S&P 500 is a market cap-weighted index, <laughs> Absolutely. not an weighted index. Uh, yeah, Big tech has done a lot of the heavy lifting this year, and NVIDIA is certainly doing everything it can to help. Uh, Jason, the company posted one of the largest single-day market cap moves in history after reporting its first quarter results. The look backward was good. Uh, revenue was down year-over-year at $7.2 billion, but ahead of expectations, net income over $2 billion, up year-over-year. Year. But the story, really, to me, Jason, is shares spiking 25% because of the look forward for this yeah. business.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the big theme with NVIDIA, of course, is artificial intelligence, right? AI. And we've been talking about it all earnings season with virtually every company from Tech companies to restaurants, right? Um, it, the market obviously likes Nvidia's strategy. What it's doing, data center, uh, was the big beneficiary, beneficiary here with the company. It represents more than half of the overall business, so it is a very big deal. Um, looking at the overall numbers, there revenue seven point two billion dollars. It was down thirteen percent from a year ago, and like you noted, the, the, some of those comparisons from a year ago, it didn't look like it was that great of a quarter. But it does come back to the guidance, and, and that's that's what really I think has the market excited. Management calling for eleven billion dollars in Revenue for the current quarter, that represents 64% growth from a year ago. And that's thanks to a quote unquote steep increase in demand related to generative AI in large language models. And then they also noted in the call that demand has extended visibility in the data center segment. Again, a big deal because data center is such a big part of the business, but that that demand has extended visibility in data center out a few quarters now, and they've "Quote unquote," procured substantially higher supply for the second half of the year. So all signs point to this not being just a one-off quarter. But I think what 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 leadership was pointing to in the call really just the early innings of a very very large and important trend that's just underway.
4: Yeah, it's it's extraordinary to watch the evolution of this business, Jason. Because I mean, I was covering Nvidia for our stock advisor service more than ten years ago, and I think I remember back then. The business was largely based on just its graphics cards, right? It was all about, well, you know, how's the video game market looking? You know, ah, we have competition from AMD and others. Like we're losing kind of pricing power, and 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 now this company is like powering the next generation of you know of computing and artificial intelligence. I mean, it's it, it, it. We were speaking before the show. You know, it is kind of the ultimate picks and shovels company for all of these major trends, whether it's data centers. Supercomputing, crypto, and of course artificial intelligence. And it goes to show you, you know, there's, there's businesses can change in a lot of ways. And if you don't follow closely enough, wow, you can miss. And what was the, what was it up in market cap yesterday? Like two 200- hundred. 50 billion? It was up. I mean, it was up like a Walmart in market cap.
2: That's yeah. I mean, that 25% gain, 25% or so. I mean, that's being mirrored today, Friday, by Marvell, which reported last night. Same general idea here. Man, they're talking about AI and all of the tailwinds. The market is eating it up. I mean, it, it, you're really seeing this rising tide lifting a lot of boats. And that kind of speaks back to what you opened with, Maddie. Maybe in the back half of the year, we start to see a little bit more parity here. Uh, obviously, remains to be seen. But clearly, AI is going to be a big point of focus, not just for the coming quarters, but I feel
0: like for the coming years. This week, we also saw earnings from Intuit, the company behind TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and other cloud software offerings. Revenue grew 7% year-over-year, year, but fell short of expectations. Same for net income, which came in at $2 billion. Matt, uh, tax prep was probably not at the top of people's lists when they were thinking about companies that benefited from pandemic activity. But from comments from Intuit's management team, it seems like they are settling into a new normal here. That's right. It was, this was fascinating. So you know, this, yeah, this is the quarter
4: for Intuit where their consumer group business, which of course is the TurboTax business, is obviously big because it includes the April fifteenth filing deadline, their third quarter. But I think what has investors concerned, or the market concerned about Intuit, was they missed expectations. But it's because they're kind of lowering their expectations for what um, for the number overall number of IRS returns. Uh, they're now expecting a decline of two percent versus original expectations for for growth of one percent. They're also expecting the uh, DIY category share of IRS return, IRS returns to decline more than they expected. And what's driving this? Well, get this, guys. It's because last year and the year before, more people filed their taxes. In order to receive pandemic-related stimulus and tax credits, but because those weren't available this year, well, a lot of them elected just not to file taxes. I mean, that's (laughs) extraordinary to me. Um, But I, you know, I think another thing, of course, we've got this overhang. We we know a few weeks ago the IRS is also planning to launch a free uh, government-provided direct tax filing program. So they've got probably more competition coming their way in 2024. But the fact that this business is not just now a seasonal business for them, it's also potentially having a second shift given you know what's what happened in the government
0: so Matt I wanted to talk to you about this company in particular because of that IRS announcement and uh, I'd like to you know this is a business that has a lot of different software offerings unpack a little bit exactly how important turbotax is to into its overall line here because uh, I could see how that would maybe scare some shareholders oh big big time I mean it's it's a big chunk of their business and
4: according to surveys done by the IRS some 72 percent of American taxpayers said they were at least somewhat interested and using a free IRS tool to do their taxes. So just imagine what could that that could mean if 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 you know if Intuit's already ratching ratcheting down their expectations for IRS returns. What's that going to look like next year if I, if the IRS actually has this tool out?
0: I certainly understand understand that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, if I can get it for free, I'm happy to do so. Absolutely. Um, we also had earnings from Zoom this week. Uh, the company beat expectations with its first quarter report, but posted its slowest quarterly growth rate at three percent. The company's enterprise segment continues to post double digit growth, but the company's revenue from smaller users declined year-over-year. Year, Jason?
2: Yeah, it's getting to be a little bit like a broken record now with Zoom. This is really about growth and where that's going to come from. Uh, they pulled forward a ton of users here over the last few years. A good thing, clearly. But that really that was fast, right? And so now it is going forward. Uh, how exactly do they continue to grow? It could be argued that the opportunity is more or less tapped at this point from a user's perspective. Um, now, to that point, while it's good news that they raised guidance for the year, uh, which they did, uh, that still only reflects top line growth of around two and a half percent or so. So, so again, yeah, where is this growth going to come from? I mean, the numbers for the quarter were just—they were okay. Revenue one point one billion dollars, up five percent excluding currency effects. We saw earnings per share of $1.16 down or I mean up versus $1.03 from a year ago. The enterprise segment revenue grew 13% with customers up 9% and the number of customers contributing more than $100,000 in trailing 12 months revenue grew approximately 23% from a year ago and the net dollar expansion rate for that enterprise segment was 112%. So those are good signs that they're doing right by their enterprise customers, but there's there's this There are these two halves to this business. There's the online, and there's the enterprise. The online is the higher margin because it's kind of automatic? I mean, that's just people signing up for Zoom online versus enterprise, where that might be someone like us using Zoom as a service for our business. It does start to get a little bit, uh, a little bit more dicey here because we saw online representing just about 20% of the business before the pandemic. Uh, now post pandemic, it's it's you know closer to half. Uh, if we start seeing that online segment drying up a little bit, then you start to ask yourself the question. You know where does that growth come from, and that's when this company starts introducing things like Zoom Rooms, Zoom Phone. Uh, they did note Zoom Phone actually made up uh, about ten percent of overall revenue for the quarter—a good sign. The tough part is they're competing against companies like Microsoft, which are offering these very same services. So, is Zoom a utility at this point? I, I, I kind of lean towards yes, and that's fine in that we all kind of use it because it's part of our daily job, but. What kind of pricing power does that, that does does that afford them? I, I don't know. That that's still that's still up for debate there, and that's why they continue to introduce these additional services. Uh, just remains to be seen whether that'll that'll really help
0: the cause. After the break, we've got more earnings updates with a look at retail and the surprising names making big moves. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis here in studio with Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. We spent the first part of our show largely singing text praises, but looking at results coming in this quarter, I think the industry I'm most surprised by is retail this earnings season. I want to spend some time talking about all these traditional mall retailers that recently reported. We had results from Gap, Urban Outfitters, and Abercrombie. They all had really strong earnings results and market reactions. Jason, what's the theme here?
2: Well, I think the theme, and this this is picking up from something that we discussed a little bit last week, it's in regard to a lot of these uh, retailers right-sizing their inventories, um, and and ultimately, the the impact that's having on their overall financials. We talked last week, companies like Target, TJX, Walmart, even raw stores, we saw their inventory levels coming down, uh, which is a good thing, ultimately, because when companies have those inflated inventory levels, uh, they, they start having Having to resort to discounting. That impacts gross margins, which ultimately comes all the way down to the bottom line. and They're just not as profitable. Uh, this, this week, we saw a lot of the same here. You mentioned Urban Outfitters, Gap, even Kohl's. Uh, a very consistent theme here. Urban Outfitters' inventories down 6%. They saw a 260 basis point uh, improvement in gross margin. Gap ended the first quarter uh, with inventories almost 30% lower than a year ago. It saw a gross margin up 570 basis points. And then Kohl's inventory down gross margin up 67 basis points. And so you start to ask yourself this question: uh, between the information we got this week, the information that we got from last week, are we starting to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel uh, in recovering from sort of this post-COVID hangover, right? I mean, a lot of these companies just we dealt with a very abnormal three years. There was no real blueprint for it for a lot of it. Um, And it just put a lot of these companies into a little bit of a difficult situation. But it seems like that they're kind of coming out on the other side of it now.
0: Matt, I can't help but look at the success of these names in particular and ask the question: Is mall activity back? Is this what we're seeing? I think it is. I think it is, guys. Because if you look at, for example, results from Simon
4: Property Group, biggest mall owner in the U.S., um, traffic to their stores is up. Uh, the occupancy rate of their properties was ninety-four point four percent at the end of Q1. That's up more than a percentage point from a year ago. Sales per square foot for their retail tenants up three point three percent over the past twelve months. And and Simon raised its guidance for the year and its dividends. So. If the biggest owner of malls is doing all this and raising guidance, I think you can bet the retail story is pretty strong. It's it's, people are getting out there and shopping in ways they really haven't since the pandemic. And I'm not surprised to see a lot of these mall, you know, specialty mall retailers do so
0: well sticking with brick and mortar uh, shares of Ulta down over 10 percent after the beauty retailer reported earnings that were up year-over-year but missed expectations revenue hit 2.6 billion up 14 percent year-over-year but management shared that it was seeing stronger sales for its mass-market products than its higher- end brands uh, Matt this seems to be sticking with a theme that we've been seeing in retail recently
4: that, that's right I mean if you look at the initial results same-store sales up 9.3 percent that includes both their online stores and stores open at least 14 months that seems pretty good. Good, transactions were up 11%. Um, a lot of retail companies would kill for that kind of growth. But again, it's that issue of the average trend, the average transaction value or ticket that you're alluding to, Dylan, which is that was down 1.5%. So you've got this this the higher end priced items are not selling as fast as they they once the were. For Ulta, you've also got a big surge in operating expenses, which brought down margins, and it doesn't look like that trend is going to improve the rest of the year. They revised down their operating margin expectation, and Manton also hinted that sales growth is really going to moderate after two years of really lights out growth. So I, it speaks to the idea that consumers are pulling back. A bit on their spending, especially when it comes to higher price ticket items. Um, I guess cosmetics would fall into that category. I'm, I'm I'm not an expert there. Maybe Jason is. Uh, but that seems to be the theme for something like Ulta.
0: Jason, you were checking in on earnings from Williams Sonoma, and it seemed like we were seeing that same story play out.
2: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. We're seeing pockets of pressure that still exist for these higher end brands. Certainly, Williams Sonoma qualifies there. So, for all of the positives we were talking about with these companies like Urban and Gap and Kohl's, Williams Sonoma is kind of, the, kind of the other side of the coin there. I mean, comp revenue declined six percent. Now, while they did reiterate fiscal 2023 guidance, you know, you look at things like inventory. I mean, inventory up 28 percent over, over, uh, over a year ago as they continue to deal with not only traffic but just logistics issues. Um, the Gross margin 38.6 percent. That's down 520 basis points from last year. Uh, but uh, you know, we also we were are talking before production year. It's nice how these companies are do, doing a little. Bit of the work for us and saying, yeah, maybe the comp versus last year isn't as great, but let's look at this. Compared to 2019, right, um, and I think that is fair. I mean, we we talked about this a bit. I think these last three years were, were tricky. You know, let's look back to 2019. That gross margin 38.6%. It's still 270 basis points higher than 2019. So I'm not going to ding them for that. I do think looking back to 2019 is a reasonable exercise. But but yeah, I mean, something they've done here they're introducing a new brand to their portfolio called Greenrow, something focused on sustainable materials, manufacturing practices uh, that that really kind of hammer home on on that green and sort of sustainable
0: movement, I think that'll fit well in with their portfolio. One of the things I'm really curious about, as we get this narrative from management teams of look at this, don't necessarily look at this. Let us be judging you on this, not necessarily that. Um, when do you give management teams that benefit of a doubt, and when do you say actually no? I'm gonna I'm gonna make you look at the year-over-year comps here.
2: Well, honestly, I kind of I, it's, as an exercise, I go back to 2019 in my head, and I sort of ask myself, did I like this business in 2019? Because I can tell you, back in 2019, I was probably making fun of. Urban Outfitters, maybe Gap or Kohl's. You know, and, and and I only say that just just a little bit tongue in cheek there. But but I do go back to 2019 and ask myself, is this a business that I was really interested in back then? If it was, well, then I take it with a little bit a little bit more of a grain of salt, and I and I and I maybe dig in a little bit further. But oftentimes, yeah, you kind of you kind of know that they're uh, trying to make the data say something in particular that uh, you know speaks to.
0: Maybe this wasn't the greatest investment in the first place. <laughs> As we wrap up retail discussion, we've got an update from Costco. The company reported earnings this week that were shy of analyst estimates, with revenue up to $53 billion and earnings per share coming in at $2.93, down year over year. Like many retailers this earnings season, Matt, it seems like Costco is bitten a little bit by slowing spend on bulk items.
4: That's it. That's it. That's what we've been talking about. I mean, traffic was good up 3.5%, but it's the average daily trans- transaction, sorry, average ticket down 3.5%. It's the big ticket. I Items, you know, furniture, electronics, jewelry, hardware and tools. I think this is just consumers are spending less on physical items. We've seen this from Amazon, FedEx, UPS, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's. um, It's it's all about. Going out there, spending more on services, travel, and um, you know, sort of smaller ticket items, uh, discretionary items. I also thought it was interesting that that Costco's e-commerce sales uh, were down nine uh, percent on an adjusted basis in the quarter. Um, that was strong. That seems sharp to me, but I guess it is again one of those things where it's if you're ordering less heavy uh, ticket items, that's where that's going to show up. It's not going to show
0: up in things like food. So putting a bow on almost everything that we're seeing here in retail, it seems like whether it's cosmetics or big box retailers. The higher end stuff is where we're seeing the pinch. Uh, more of the mass market, more affordable things are where we're still seeing consumer activity, Jason. That seems fair. I think with
2: Home Depot and Lowe's, you look for pro customers to re-accelerate business here down the road, but
0: that certainly is play out on that big ticket item uh, metric that Matty quoted. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, Fellas, we will see you guys in a little bit. Up next, we've got tips from a turnaround specialist.
3: You must understand. The touch of your hand makes my folks react That it's only the thrill of girl.
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. When he took the CEO role at United Airlines in 2015, Oscar Munoz was stepping into a difficult job at a difficult time. The company's recent merger with former competitor Continental was not going according to plan, and the business was facing operational and cultural challenges. Motley Fool contributor Lou Whiteman talked with Munoz about his approach to turning the airline around, dealing with personal setbacks,
3: and the lessons in leadership from his book, Turnaround Time. So let's dive into United. And, um, you know, to set the stage and, and to push back if, I, if I'm going too far, but, you know, from my professional career, going back to the mid 90s, United has been a troubled company or, or a difficult situation, all the way back to the uh, employee stock ownership plan. Uh, in 2015, you're coming in off of the board. You were named CEO. We were a few years after the merger with Continental, which was a merger in name only. You very much still had. Two airlines functioning under one holding company and labor very much not on you know rowing together uh, there had just been a, a kind of a CEO controversy that, that you're stepping into as well it's a tough job to take if you care about your career so um, you step in here and a, a lot of the folks the book is just how exactly you accomplished what you did but so what was the game plan day one hit the ground running how do you come into this quagmire and talk about the plan coming into it you've been kind
1: in your assessment of the company and its culture and its performance uh, so thank you for being gentle but I, I often at my first uh, my first interview with the Wall Street Journal when asked the question about how are you finding things and my answer was I think our entire workforce is, uh, is disillusioned disengaged and disenfranchised and as a board member I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I and we didn't see that earlier um, and so, you know, your assessment of where it was, I, you know, part of leadership is assessing very quickly where you are and being really practical and real about it. Because I issued a full page ad, uh, you know, in essence, apologizing to the world. It's like, you know, mea culpa, like we've let you down and we're going to make things better. And that was a lot of controversy there because you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to do it. But, you know, you got to set, uh, you got to set a north star and a goal and then have everybody drive. Because one of my first ever speeches to the company was, we, we are wonderful at what we do, but we are wandering nomads in the desert, all headed in our own different direction without a North Star, and like it or not, we're going to provide one, and I'm going to take my time to do that. So, to your question of how you do something like this, um, I think the leadership lesson is, first of all, in a turnaround, a true turnaround, which this was, um, there's no shortage of places that are broken that need to be fixed. Determining which one of those is the one that you need to or want to start with is a really big and important component of uh, doing a success story. And I I had been personally involved in, in other turnarounds over the course of my career, so I've had some wonderful experience and wonderful allies along the way. So my instinct in this particular situation, when I met with employees, and there was always a lingering feeling when I, being embraced or taking pictures with folks, where somebody almost screaming from inside, Help me." And it it takes uh, it takes someone that's willing to engage at that human level to sense that. Because you can stand on a podium and give great speeches about, we're going to do this and we're going to rule the world. And people are out there truly it's saying the same things, like, yeah, I've heard this stuff before. Um, I took it a, a step further. I, I did not do pulpit speeches. I did not do massive work. I went in, literally into the crowd as often as I could at all hours of the night, and really created an immediate, I think, bond that was just different than ever before. Because people would say, "Wow, well, we've heard that. Fill in your, your expletive, uh, as you see, that I've heard all this stuff before. My answer would always be. So let me get this straight. So yes, the CEO of the corporation has been here at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, standing on a picnic bench in a hangar in Houston, Texas, in this particular case, sitting there asking you questions about what he needs to, what I need to do next. And I need mm-hmm. actionable items Emotion, get it out of your system, but I need something more solid because I I can't act, I'm pissed, I hate you, you should fire everyone because that just doesn't make sense. And so again, uh, like you and I would debate an issue if we knew each other, right? When you trust someone, when you trust in someone and they're asking you a question, um, you have to convey that you're willing to listen. And I think that was probably, I call it listen, learn, and only then can you lead. Uh, it's just, I've, I've truncated it to that point. And people say, yeah, 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 that's right. It is not easy to do. Uh, listening, truly listening, learning, meaning you've heard things, parrot that back. Is this what I heard you say, Lou? Is this? And that takes time, it's effort, and it puts you in a very vulnerable place because you don't know everything. In our particular company, in that particular state of distress that it was, it was the right thing to do, and it proved to be successful.
3: Now, that sounds all great on paper, but it also, it takes a lot of luck. And I think you kind of got into that into the book where, you know, you were doing this. You were going everywhere you could, going to the hubs, going to the main stations you are the CEO talking to a lot of frontline employees who've been burned before. You're not exactly going to say, oh, good, you're here. Here's a, you know a list. Uh, you tell, I think it's Amy's story, right, in the book. Yeah. Kind of just a little bit of, I don't know if you call it luck or right place, right time, but just kind of, it. it's still with all of that. I, I, t- to me, the lesson was, you got to do this a lot to find that person. You just have to stay with it. But tell, I, I think Amy's story, that, that just sums up exactly what you're talking about here, if you could share that.
1: Well, thank you for bringing that up, because that, that is it is quite a seminal moment in the turnaround of United, because as we've talked, I, I'm out there listening, and I've told the world I'm going to spend time, actually get to understand and know from the people that actually touch you as a customer, uh, what truly is broken about us before I can do anything, because there was no shortage of things to do, as I said, you got to pick the right thing. Um, And so I'm flying back from Denver to Chicago one day, and I've been out on this tour, and I've listened a lot, and I've learned a ton, and I have 500 things. I'm just exaggerating, but a number of things that are, are wrong and that are all actionable, that all could be the first thing you start with. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, like, okay, you put yourself in the situation, you've told everybody you're going to go out there, you're going to figure out this one thing, and I'm like, I have no clue at this point. Yeah, I'm even more confused with the amount of things. And so, call it divine intervention, call it luck, call it fate, calling, I think, I have a maternal grandmother looking at me, from, sorry, I always get emotional when I think about looking at me from above, but, so I go up to the front galley, and, and my style of interviewing is really, really you know, super sophisticated. I walk up to you and say, hi, Lou, how's it going? You know, it's like, you know, I'm Oscar, you know, I'm just trying, um, And you could see her resistance to have a conversation. It's like, out of, I don't want to talk to you. I don't care to talk to you. There's nothing I'm going to say that you're going to even listen to or act, right? That's the disengaged and disenfranchised nature of, of, our, of our employee culture at the time. And so I kind of stood there for a moment and, and I, you know, I, I respected her desire not to talk, but as I was leaving, I just touched her gently on the arm. and said, I'm just sitting right there if you care to share something. Well, as I touched her gently, she pulled away and I could tell she was upset and then she looked at me and her face said it all. And she, she burst into a, an emotional it an emotional outburst of tears and anger and suppressed, you know, you just had to be there really see the thing. And the, the words that she said that proved seminal in our turnaround was like, she said, Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. And what that meant is, I'm sorry the plane is late. She had nothing to do with it. I'm sorry our coffee sucks. She had nothing to do I'm sorry we don't have the food. I'm sorry you can't sit with it. I'm so, you know, if you think about our airline industry, because of all the policies and procedures we have, we kind of have to tell you no a lot, but the way you tell someone no and over time um, just gets tiring. And for someone of that level that every day is flying, being told to be the brand, be the friendly skies, be all these things, Uh, I can only imagine what they're thinking. It's like, well, you know, if just somebody at the corporate level would understand what we went through and fix some of the things that we don't have a chance to fix. So for me, it became crystal clear. I got it. I know what this is going to be. We've lost our employees, and before we do anything else, we have to regain their trust. Um, And so that uh, that was my underlying mission, so I felt better and more calm about it. I now have to prove this to my senior leadership team, to our board, venture to investors and to customers, because if you think about, what are you gonna do first? Uh, we're gonna get our employees back into, into the bus with us, which sounds like a good idea, but it sounds expensive, it sounds time-consuming, doesn't sound like you're taking me into account as a customer or an investor, Blah. you can just imagine the thing. And um, I think one of the leadership lessons, again, is as you do, whatever you do and however you do it, once you've done it, and you, you gotta have that conviction, Everybody in the world is going to shoot at it. And the only way leaders lead is to get at that conviction, convince other people to get alongside of it. And I think that was the, the, the premise. That was the promise we made and the premise upon which, may, which we made it. Um, and it proved to be useful because over time, uh, regaining the trust of many, you know, 100,000 employees spread all over God's green earth who are all feeling the way they did in a world where, you know, you only see one or two or three or four at a time. We don't have a factory floor there's a level of discretionary effort that's in all of us that has to be captured, and that is only captured through both heart and mind. is hard because it's emotional. The mind is is, you know, it's like, well, we're broken, we need to fix this and the math doesn't work. I get that, but why is that my my problem? When you're a frontline employee, it was the heart. It's like, let's do this together.
3: As you mentioned, the best laid plans, right? So you come up with maybe a concept, you need to sell that. I believe what 37 days in, 36 days in, you have a heart attack and you end up in a medically induced coma for weeks with your family out of town, which is kind of just reading this, you know, just kind of the, the personal Side of it too, of the, you know, dear God, this is a human being. You ended up not long after having a heart transplant, all while trying to run a major airline, all while trying to take, you know, very on, you know, just. Hopefully, formulate a plan, and then you have to sell it to everyone. Uh, If nothing else, yes, it's a great PSA for listen to your body and 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 act quickly. Because thank God you did. But uh, just as a manager, for one thing, are you crazy for coming back? You know, like like why at that point wasn't that a sign? Like, all right, Oscar, maybe it's someone else. But also, how. I mean it's hard to think of a bigger momentum stopper in a job that it seems like that yes you went out you were trying to make a good impression you were trying to hit the ground running with momentum there's nothing like a medically induced coma to to kind of blow momentum I just I don't know I there's a question in there somewhere but kind of how is it possible that you continued on from there I guess or kind of how how am I overstating the difficult uh, you know
1: it was tough. I mean, not only I was coming back from this medical event, we had a proxy battle brewing. We still had labor negotiations that were undone. I mean, I was only 37 days into the job before I went out, so uh, everything was in front of us completely. So, um, as I said to my the doctor, the receiving doctor, as I was being wheeled into the emergency room after this nasty heart attack, uh, I muttered enough, incoherent enough, to get names and, and numbers of, of uh, you know people to call. But also, I kept saying, "I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this," which is so on brand for me. Um, you know, your question on um, on people uh, and why I came back—it's a it's a very touching story to me, and it's why honestly we wrote the book because when I was down, these people, these tens of thousands of people spread all over all over the globe in in the in the days that I went down, the outpouring of affection and support through letters and notes and cards and flowers and food that were being sent my way, um, were overwhelming. It it came to the point where there was so much mail that my children it would be received at my apartment. My children read those every morning and there was always a new bag of things. And It it became such a ritual at the hospital that the doctors and and nurses themselves would come in for the, we dubbed the morning reading. And in in the reading of those notes and the outpouring of people, again, 37 days, I've met certainly hundreds of people, maybe a few thousand people in my walk, but the word had spread uh, back to what we talked earlier about the level of connection that I was very uh, honored and fortunate to be making with them. Um, and the outpouring of infection was so strong that the decision or the conversation within my family about whether to return or not was never really had other than, Dad, you have to go back. You know, these people want you and need you, which is you know um, which is was always my intent by the way <laughs> I, I never I never had a single uh, I never a single doubt about coming back uh, 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 I, I've been I, people have shared with me excerpts from many of the talking heads over the course of my illness about he'll never come back he'll never be the same his mental acuity will be depressed his energy all these things you know the doomsday aspects and um, I see those people every once in a while when I'm in green rooms and there's a little level of uh, well, you love me now, right? But the reason to come back, I, there's a, 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 just a, a point story in the middle of the night in the hospital, which is probably the most saddest, most depressing time if you've ever been in the hospital. A nurse said, "You know, I see a lot of people come through here, and I've, I've labeled I've, I've, I've sectioned them off into two. It's about the why question. Some people ask in a defiant, angry way, like why? Why did this happen to me? I'm a good person, I'm religious, I'm fit or whatever. How dare I get cancer or heart or whatever. And then there's the other person that say why that realize what's happened to them and ask the question more in a, why was I spared? Why am I still here? What is left to me to do? And she said wonderfully, it's like, you, you strike me as that second person. And that, combined with the letters and the outpouring of affection and the support of my family, was why we came back. There was a lot left to do. And my why was we hadn't finished. And I, I, and I thought, I was certain, we had the magic potion to begin the turnaround
0: at the airline. Coming up after the break, Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I call
2: you, I need you, my you.
0: As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Matt Argersinger and Jason Moser. We have news that will devastate kids on college campuses and in-laws around the country. Netflix is finally beginning its crackdown on password sharing. The streamer began notifying subscribers in the US that they will be an extra fee of seven ninety-nine per month to share your Netflix account with someone outside your home. Jason, I know you have a kid going off to college soon. Are you paying that extra eight dollars a month? No, 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 no,
2: no, no. I am not. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think this is interesting from the perspective that they rolled this out in Canada earlier. They saw some initial pushback it seemed like it got a little bit worse before it got better but it did get better so i expect that same dynamic really to kind of play out here domestically but this i think is part partly to a greater strategy and we know that they're introducing their ad supported model much as disney's doing the same You know, these companies are trying to push us to that ad subscription. And the main reason is because the economics are so outstanding, right? They make more money on that ad subscription. Even though the the cost for the subscription is lower, the ads that they're serving up really the economics work out. So you're going to see Disney, for example, raise the price of their ad-free. Offering in order to create a bit more delta, as they said in the call, they want to get the consumer's eyes on that lower price point, uh, and, and, and I think that's I think there's going to be something to that. We're seeing Netflix do the same thing. I mean, the numbers are the numbers, so it's just you know, there's no free lunch. And I think those days of ad-free, low-cost streaming are coming to an end. Matter the golden days over. Well, the golden days are definitely over for my in-laws because they uh,
4: <laughs> they love the Great British Breaking Show, and I know they use other people's passwords to get it. So uh, sorry,
2: sorry, mom and dad in law.
0: Let's get to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Jason, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: Uh, Yeah, just keeping an eye on Salesforce. Ticker is CRM. and This is a company that is in uh, customer relationship management software. Uh, They have earnings coming out on Wednesday after the market closes. The stock had an awful 2022. It's off to a good start here in 2023. Uh, Shares are up around 60% so far. But if you remember, too, at the beginning of the year, the companies were hit with an onslaught of activist investor interest. Really, uh, wanting the company to focus on efficiencies and bringing more uh, more down to the bottom line makes a lot of sense. You know, this is a pretty well established business. They're making, uh, you know, 20, 27, 28 billion dollars a year in revenue. So we expect some earnings, right, Dylan? Uh, they did uh, guide for eight point one six billion dollars of revenue for this quarter. They're getting ready to announce that represents growth of approximately ten to twelve percent. Uh, and then also just kind of interested to see what the leadership situation is going to be here now that Benioff is back on his own see.
0: Dan, a question about Salesforce. Less of a question,
2: more of a
4: comment. Dylan, Jason, you know a business is doing well when they have their own
0: skyscraper in downtown San Francisco. Yeah, I guess so. That's just mostly a fact, Dan. I think.
4: Well, it's just you know a bold choice for Jason to choose one of the top 100 largest companies on the planet, you know, by market cap. So bold, bold move, Jason. Thank you. Keep the spice coming, Dan. Uh, Matt, what is on your radar? Uh, hey, I'm looking at Invitation Homes, ticker INVH. Uh, it is the country's leading single-family rental company. So not apartment buildings, single-family homes, of which they own about eighty-three thousand uh, as the end of the, as of the end of the first quarter. Um, so you know, since the pandemic, a lot of people who want to remain renters or price out of buying a home, but want more space, want a home office, don't want to share a roof or walls with others. I get it. It's a big trend. Um, most of their homes are located in the fast-growing Sunbelt states and cities. Um, Results were fantastic in Q1. Same-store rent growth was up 8% on new leases. Average occupancy was almost 98%. I wouldn't call the shares cheap, but you are getting a 3.1% dividend yield, Dan, which is one of the highest yields Invitation shares have offered since they've been public. Dan, a question about Invitation Homes. Man, you guys are making this hard on me today. You know, <laughs> both good companies with excellent financials and bright futures. It's hard. Uh, so, Maddie, these are long term rental homes, not short terms? Correct. These are general leases that go for a year, or even longer with single family rentals. Yeah.
0: Dan, which one's going on your watch list? You know, I like a good skyscraper, Dylan, so I'm going to go <laughs> Salesforce. <laughs> Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.